morning, everybody. Uh, please turn your Bible to Philippians chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 12 through 18. And let's please stand for the reading of God's Word. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights of the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. You may be seated. I'm going to uh, pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in. <clears throat> so, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word that you've given to us. And I just pray for us all now as we look at um, this particular set of verses, 12 through 18, where um, really... One of the largest mysteries is kind of held out for us in those first couple of verses that um, we would approach it with awe and reverence and, and gratefulness that you have explained um, man's salvation and how that works with our responsibility and your sovereignty. Um, but not just approach it in some kind of intellectual manner, but instead um, you've already have have given us a doxology from Paul in the first couple of verses that this is about worship, and then you teach us something, and then you talk about how it looks as an obedient follower of Christ after that. And so I pray that our hearts would be yielded and submitted towards worship, not just uh, knowledge intake. I pray for myself, Lord, that you would help me, God, speak with precision um, and clarity, as well as, God, would you um, do a, a major work in my heart regarding sanctification. I I am desperately needing to be sanctified, Lord. And so um, I stand as a needy sinner, just as we all are. So help me exercise humility in realizing that I need this particular word just as much as all of us here. We thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so thank you, Stephen, for doing verses 1 through 11 last week in chapter 2. And I just want to remind you uh, that... Everything that was in verses 1 through 11 helps us get to what we're going to be looking at in 12 through 18. You, you can't just start at 12 and not, not remember 1 through 11. So just in case you weren't here or just so you can remember, in 1 through 11 in chapter 2, Paul is, is kind of building an argument saying, all of you, you just need to be humble. I mean, amazingly humble. Therefore, base that humility that you should have on Jesus, who was ultimately humble by leaving the throne room of God, becoming a man, and then living among humans. That's ultimate humility. I mean, just amazing humility. And when he says, based on all that, that's how you should live. Paul, after that, in verses 9, 11, and 9 10, and 11, explodes in doxology. You can see he just explodes in worship after he's dealt with the incarnation and the amazing humility that it takes Jesus to become a man and leave the throne room of God. And tells us in verses 1 through 5, that that's the kind of humility you should have. Paul explodes in doxology and says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. That's believer and unbeliever. 
Everyone's going to bow a knee to Jesus one day. And it says that in tongue, and every tongue conf- in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we have to remember this explosion of doxology from Paul as we're going into 12 through 18. It's very important that as we're going to talk in verses 12 through 18, talk about sanctification. I know it's a big word. I'm going to explain it in just a second. That we base it on 9 through 11, worship. The way that we're going to root ourselves, have a foundation in becoming more Christ-like, pursuing holiness, living out the Christian life, if you will, is based on 9 through 11. It's all an act of worship where we are free now not to be motivated by guilt, but instead by grace. He has lavished upon us grace in the incarnation of Christ, coming and going to the cross. And based on that, we see this worship that Paul has, and that's what's going to motivate us as we go into sanctification. So we're going to be looking at 12 through 18 today. And there's five things regarding sanctification that I want you to know. Um, The first two are kind of big, broad understandings about sanctification. And the last three are going to be specific kind of areas about sanctification. Um, So let me Let me do a little work before we get started so you can know what I'm talking about. So sanctification. Some of you may know this, but um, when whenever we tell as believers, tell someone, hey, you need to be saved. You need to have salvation happen to you. This this idea of salvation is really um, a big overarching thing that happens in kind of four stages, if you will. The first is regeneration. And that's just a big high dollar word that says um, you don't know anything about Jesus and you have no inclinations or desires towards Jesus until one day God comes down into your heart because you're dead and no one that's dead can make themselves become alive. Only God can do this. He makes you alive and all of a sudden you have something that's happened. You're now alive. You've been regenerated. You've been born again and you see and understand the gospel and you have these amazing desires to want to do what Christ says. You see the, you see the gospel and you, the good news that Jesus died for you and you think this is amazing. That's amazing. Amazing. I want that. That's unbelievable. All of a sudden you've been regenerated before that. That's never happened. And when you do that, whenever you see and understand the gospel, finally, you believe in Jesus. Whenever you understand it, you believe. And so after you're regenerated, you're justified. Justification happens at faith, at belief. Whenever you say, I believe in Jesus's work on the cross, that's unbelievable. And so after that, Regeneration, justification, at justification, God declares you righteous. He looks at you and he said, you are righteous. You are 100% um, counted innocent now in my eyes. And so that's just the first two parts. There's also another couple. Now, those two things really kind of chronologically happen together. Some theologians want to pull them out and say they happen. In a, in a, and I, I believe regeneration proceeds, but really all of it happens instantaneously. That's just a one kind of instant mark. And then from that mark at justification, at belief, now when you're a believer, you have this long process until you die called sanctification. And it happens the rest of your life. In contrast to justification, which is instant, this is the rest of your life called sanctification. Finally, there's glorification. That's when you die. This body, this sinful body is then transformed into the likeness of our eldest brother, Jesus. And we will sin no more and we will be with him and our bodies glorified. And so that's, that's salvation, all of those things. Now, the first one, regeneration and justification and glorification, we would all admit, well, that's God does those things. <laughs> I, I can't regenerate myself. God can only do that. I certainly can't declare myself righteous. I can't say I'm righteous. I mean, God has to say you're righteous because you've exercised faith. And the faith we have was a gift from God anyway. So certainly we didn't do it. And then glorification, I have 
the complete inability to say, I think I just want to be like Jesus now and never sin again. Only God can cause that to happen. And so we have this other thing called sanctification. Um, and that's the process of at justification until we die, growing in holiness, growing in Christ-likeness, becoming more and more like Jesus. And every single one of us, if you're in Christ right now, is in that. And so Paul is going to address this right now in this, in this text. There's five things that I want you to see regarding sanctification. Now, here's the key. Those other three are all an act of God. But this one is an act of God and us working together. We're going gonna, gonna to explain that because it's different than the other three and how that actually works. Um, but I want you to know that it's an act of, all, of, of God and us working together, being sanctified. And you've got to be really careful when you say that because obviously if we say it's me doing it in some ways, then you can say, well, I need to get some glory here. I, I've done something. So we've got to be really careful. We're going to talk about that soon. Um, but that's what we're going to be looking at here. And so let's go ahead and dive in to uh, verse 12 and and. Look at this work out your salvation phrase, because this is where it gets a little crazy, uh, where people can get confused and um, think that you can actually work for your salvation. And so let's let's look at it and then we'll we'll go through. So verse 12, therefore, and anytime you see the word therefore, you need to know why it's what it's there for. It's based on this doxology of praise. Therefore, because Jesus is highly exalted, my beloved As you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Just a side note, you should should live your life for Jesus, not just when people are around, but all the time. Because Jesus is always around, um, and he has saved you. And here it is. This is the statement that has made people's head explode for 2,000 years. Here it is. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out. Now, what happens is the reason why people's head explodes, in case you're unaware, is when you see the word work, some people go over and say, work, you can't work for your salvation. Run away from that. It's all God. All God does. If I work, then I get to boast and I get and I get glory. And oh, I don't want that. And so they run away from the word work. And there's some people who say work. Yes, I want to do that. I need to. If I don't work, God's mad at me. And so I got to keep going. And therefore, I have this, you know, right. It's kind of a, a, a little thing where if I do some, God's more happy. I do a little bit more. God, and so they, they go crazy on it. And so you have to try to figure out. Let's, let's look at what he's not saying, okay? There's some things that maybe that have been ingrained in you throughout your life of the way you've kind of taken this. Remember, he's saying work out your salvation, not work for your salvation. It's more work from salvation. You are now saved. Therefore, live a life that gives evidence that you've been saved. I'm getting ahead of myself. He's not saying God's kind of done his part in your salvation halfway. Now it's your chance. You go ahead and take it the rest of the way. He's not saying that. He's also not saying, well, you might be saved now, but really the ball's in your court. You know, have a good one. Hope you can figure it out in your life. He's not saying that. He's also not saying um, the opposite of that, which is you just need to let go And let God, you don't have to do anything. Just let God just relax right now. The spirit takes it from here. It's all his deal. You just kind of sit back in your beach chair. That's your life, beach chair. You just do whatever you want. Let go, let God. That's that's not what he's saying either. Um, However, he is saying, work out your salvation with fear and trembling precisely because God is working in us. We're going to see that in verse 13. So there's a definite command and we don't, We don't need to run away from this as believers in Jesus when he says, work out your salvation. We just have to understand what that means. It's not work for your salvation. It's work out your salvation, which means 
Now that I have been, as I said, justified, and that is absolutely definite, that can never change. If God has declared me righteous, God, then that doesn't change. I mean, because God did it. If I declare any of you righteous, that doesn't mean anything. But if God declares you righteous, it means everything. And it's absolutely standing, absolutely binding forever. So you can rest in that. And if he's done it, then you can say, based on that, now I can work out my salvation. Therefore, anything that I do now is giving evidence of the declaration that God's already given me. Any work, any fruit, anything that happens, anything that's doing good, that gives God glory, that looks Christ-like, is giving evidence of what's already happened. So that's what working out your salvation with fear and trembling means. All right, so... Now, let's look at this because we need to understand how that works together. And Paul's going to help us. Because when you first see, well, if I'm told to work out my salvation, then isn't that me doing something? Paul answers that for us right there in 13. And this 12 and 13, um, verses 12 and 13, are, I think, probably the two best verses in the Bible that help us understand God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and how those two things work together in our salvation. I think they're probably some of the best. You've heard the other elder, Jack, whenever he's preaching sometimes, reference these verses. Because these two verses help us understand how God sovereignly saves, but man's still, sovereignly, or man's still absolutely responsible. And how all that works together in our salvation. And this is just a side note. I want you to remember this. A lot of times, whenever we read, well, if God's sovereign in salvation and man's responsible and he because he's a sinner and he has to be saved, we take those things and we dichotomize them and we say, well, it's got to be one or the other. Which one is it? Is God totally sovereign or is man is responsible? It's got to be one or the other. And in Paul's mind, that dichotomy does not exist. He's like, yeah, it's both. God is sovereign and man is responsible. And, I'm, and, and it's absolutely, it's both of them. It's never one or the other. And look how he answers that for us in 12. So we know in 12, he's telling us, work out your salvation. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now he's going to tell us how that happens. Look at verse 13. For, just a reminder, anytime you see that word for in the text, that means an argument is about to be built. And that's good. We, know, we need to understand how arguments are being built. And then he says, for it is God who works in you. All right, let's, let's stop. I'm supposed to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. There is an element of which I, a human, am supposed to, in pro- process of sanctification, do stuff. But as I do stuff, working out this salvation, he's telling us that all the while in verse 13, for it is God who, who works in you. Therefore, the things I do, it's God who's working in me, bringing these things about. Not only does Paul tell us that, he even tells us the two ways in which he works. Look at this. He tells us, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he's He's working in you in the way that you do stuff and the way you think about doing stuff. This is what I mean. Um, every midnight, every night at midnight, I want to eat a bowl of ice cream. It's just the way it is. Like, I love it. And at midnight, right when it rolls around, I'm like, oh, ice cream. I want it right now. Now, here's what happens. When it comes midnight, and it's, you know, in my mind, mentally, bowl of ice cream time. Um, what's the best scenario is I should not want it. I want that desire to be just thrown out. I don't even think about it. But what happens is I think about it and sometimes I eat it and sometimes I don't. So I, that's, that's the work part. But what I can't do is take away the desire and throw it away. I can't, I can't will myself not to desire it. That's impossible. I need somebody, an out, 
the Lord to reach in. And when it comes midnight, I'm not even thinking about it. I'm not even desiring it. And that's what he's talking about. Now, I'm not saying eating ice cream is a sin. It's far from a sin. It's good stuff. But just keep that mindset as we're going into this. And just think, those things that you want, those desires that you have, those desires that you have, you can't will yourself not to do stuff. It's going to happen. But what he's doing is, in the process of sanctification, it, the right thing you do, God was at work behind it. And even, he's even willing things. So the desires that you have, he takes away sinful desires and just removes them. He's willing you. You can see it right here. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's literally changing your will. That is only something God can do. You can't change your will. You can want to change your will. You can't, I, I, will to, I will to lift that chair up. It didn't happen. You see, like we can't do it. But the Lord can actually change our will and say, I'm not even going to let you have that desire to do something. All right? So whenever we see in verse 12 that it's our responsibility to work, as we're working day by day, we are working out our salvation. We are sharing the gospel. We are trying to kill sin. We're letting people hold us accountable. Whenever someone needs to hear the gospel, we tell them. And all the while, throughout our entire 10, 15, 20, 80 years, or whatever you get, you're doing stuff. And you can see that you're bearing fruit. You're working. As Matthew 7 and John 15 tells that we need to have fruit, evidence of our life. And as we get towards the end of our life, we can look back and we say, look at those things I did. And when we're in heaven, we can say, look, I worked out my salvation. I gave evidence that the justification that happened my entire life, I, I did look at that. There's fruit. I worked out my salvation with fear and trembling. And then when we get to heaven, the Lord's going to, hey, guess what? If you see, actually, that was me above it, willing and working it all, making it happen the whole time. So we were working together. Yes, you were actually doing it because you still have a mind. You breathe and think. And so you need to work. You need to push yourself. However, if you look, it was actually God doing it the whole time. The reason why that's key is this. If you think that you've done it, well, then you have reason to boast. You have reason to boast. If you think that you, if it's, we have to know that all the while it was God doing it. And we can't just say, well, God's going to do it. So I can just beach chair this thing. Like that's not it. We have to push ourselves. We have to work as hard as we can and go through sanctification as hard as we can. It's not earning salvation, but we have to do that because that's what he wants us to do. But all the while it's God doing it. And if we think that we're doing it, then when we get to heaven, we're going to ask for that, last, that one song. Hey, that song, I know like God saved me 99%, but I did one, so I have reason to boast. So reserve that bridge where we sing a praise to me because I have reason to boast because I did something. Never is there going to be a chorus in heaven about you or me. It's all going to be about Jesus. Okay, therefore, all the while your sanctification, God was willing and working, bringing it about. It's so key that you know he gets all the glory for your sanctification. However... Verse 12, you still have to work. Now, I know that sounds mysterious, and I'll grant you that's mystery. But never ever do I think, I, there's a notion right now in the gospel-centered movement even, that sanctification, what you need to do in order to be sanctified is just return mentally to your justification. And that's all you need to do is psychologically deal with your, your justification. Just know who you are. And while I think that's absolutely true, and we're going to talk about that later on in the sermon, it's not just that. It's not just that. It's not just preaching the gospel to yourself every day. It is that. We're going to talk about that. But it's also, verse 12, you got to work and it's hard. I know it's hard. I live in this, 
this world with you as a believer. But it doesn't erase the responsibility that we have to work. All right, so let's look at sanctification here. Um, and we're going to talk about uh, five notes regarding sanctification. And as I said, the first two are going to be kind of big picture stuff. And the last three are real specific. Everybody with me? Yeah, all right, good. <clears throat> Wake up. All right, here we go. Verse 12, you can see, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, here it is, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So here's the first note, is this. When we see that work out your salvation with fear and trembling, that's a direct command for us to make sure that our life as a believer is giving evidence that we are Christians. So right here, your life should have evidence that your justification is real. That's point number one. When it comes to sanctification, when it comes to living out this Christ-like life that you have, there must be, as Matthew 7 says, as John 15 says, as Romans 7, 4, Romans 7, 6 says, the moment that you're justified, the rest of your life, there needs to be an ongoing pursuit of bearing fruit for Jesus. Now, remember, don't get, don't get messed up here. That bearing fruit is not saying, look at that, Jesus, now I'm right with you. No, it's since I am justified, since I'm absolutely declared righteous, I want to bear fruit for Jesus. I want to kill sin. I want to read my Bible. I want to pray. I want to do the spiritual disciplines. I want to tell people about Jesus. And that's the fruit bearing. But there must be fruit bearing. In sanctification, there must be fruit bearing. So let's, all of us, take a step back and just think, what day was it? How long has it been? Or however you want to say it. Since I put my faith in Christ and now over the course of this three months, three years, 30 years or whatever it is, do I see evidence that fruit is being born for the glory of Jesus in my life? Even if it's just a small amount. Listen, God is pleased with your small amount because I can go back and say I can build a case that says all the fruit you bear is actually the Lord's sovereign will as well. So we can it's okay, but there needs to be evidence of your life that's being given over or that's been given towards the glory of Jesus. So here we see work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And, and, and I think the reason why Paul's using the words fear and trembling, it's not like afraid. Like I just saw, you know, a scary horror movie cause it's October. And so now I'm scared. I'm like in the corner shaking. That's not, it's, it's a reverent awe towards the great grandeur of the Lord and the kindness back to Philippians 2, 1 through 11, that Jesus would leave heaven and come down and just incarnate himself. We are not that great. He would become a man and we're not that great. And then live and dwell among us and be with us. That's amazing humility and amazing love. And I'm kind of in awe and reverent fear and fear and trembling of that. So I'm going to live out my salvation because he is so amazingly good to us being willing to do that. That's what we're talking about when we say fear and trembling, not, you know, crazy, scary stuff. Um, and then we see in 13, this shift, and this is, I've already kind of explained it a little bit, but I want you to see this because this is really important. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you. When it comes to sanctification, those first few words in 13 are absolutely essential. Sanctification is not a path marked out before you that you white knuckle through. You can't, it's impossible. These first words are some of the best news in the world regarding sanctification. For it is God who works in you. So the second thing regarding sanctification is this. The Holy Spirit 
is essential in sanctification. The Holy Spirit is essential in sanctification. And you can see right there, there's two ways he tells us. The way the Holy Spirit is working in our lives in sanctification is he's working and he's willing. He's He's given us the will, the desire to do the good deed and the desire not to do the sin. And he's also given us the work. He's actually performing through us the good deed so that God gets all the glory and avoiding the bad deed or the or the sinful act. And he's doing both of those things for his glory. He is the initiator in the godly desires that we do and the one who gloriously carries them to completion through us. And this removes, as I said, all grounds for boasting. Now, here's what's the thing. And this is, this is just me. I mean, this is not just, I'm going to say, this, you do this. I do this as well. I think every single one of us as believers would say, sanctification, I believe that absolutely. Holy Spirit necessity, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more, Fudd. But here's what I think we all do. And I think you do this because this is what I do. Maybe I'm just wretchedly sin, more sinful than you. But this is what I do. I say, Holy Spirit, you're absolutely essential in sanctification. I need you more than anything. However, What I end up doing is neglecting him in one of two ways, and maybe both. The first thing is, um, is this. I know that I need your help to not sin and to do all these things, but instead of depending upon you for it is God who wills, I'm just going to do it myself. I'm just going to white knuckle, put a, strap up my bootstraps and do my hardest to kill sin. I'm going to do my hardest to do everything that I'm supposed to do. I know you're essential, but you know what? I'm pretty capable. You know, I, I live in America. I, I live in 2012. I can do a lot of stuff myself. And so I'm just going to, I'm going to do this stuff myself because I've got a checklist that I can knock out pretty good every day. What happens is if we say we absolutely need you, Holy Spirit, but we just depend on ourselves to do it, that yields legalism. It just yields legalism. Look what I've done. And how come you're not doing it? Come on, I can do this. You should do this. And so the first way, I think when we would say the Holy Spirit's essential, some of us tend to say, yeah, he's essential. But practically it works itself out by us neglecting him and actually doing the things. We just do it ourselves and become legalists. The second way is this, and maybe this is more you. Um, if you're Find yourself not so driven, if you will. If you're not a type A, if you're not a get it done kind of person, you're the kind that likes to just chill all the time. This might be you. Yes, Holy Spirit, you're absolutely essential. But um, here's the thing. I'm completely okay with this category of sin in my life or these particular sins in my life. I'm completely okay with those. So even though you're going to come and convict me of that, just like the previous one where I'm going to ignore you and do it my hardest, I'm going to ignore you and just do that sin anyway. That's fine with me. I mean, I'm going to do these other things. But this one right here, whenever you come, Holy Spirit, oh, you're essential. You're essential. But I'm still going to do this anyway. If we do that, that doesn't yield legalism. That yields license. And both of those are dangerous places to go. We're just absolutely okay with it. And I'm not going to fill in that blank for you. I I could. I want to really bad. But then I feel like you'll call me a legalist. So I'm not going to do it. But you can fill in mentally that list. What is that list of stuff that you're just absolutely okay with? Yeah, I know that's, but you know, it's not, I don't do these big things, but that Jesus isn't really upset about that. I submit that Jesus died on the cross for that as well. So here's the thing. When the Holy Spirit comes and convicts you of those things, work out your salvation. Depend on him to put those things to death. Go find a book called Respectable Sins by Jerry Bridges. It'll knock you back. I mean, that's, he addresses those things that we find ourselves as Christians so comfortable with. Um, 
So I think that we would all agree the Holy Spirit is essential, but we cannot neglect him and make ourselves legalists or um, okay with license. Now, that's the, the big broad things I wanted to talk about in regard to sanctification. The one is our responsibility and work, and the second is our absolute responsibility and dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Now what we're going to do in these last three is get really specific. Three specific things that we're going to talk about. Um, so let's look at verse 14. 14 through 18 gives us three kind of specific. I just put it all as five notes about sanctification because that's just easier. So 14, look at this. And maybe some of you know this. I used to have, when I was a youth minister, a t-shirt that literally said, verse 14, it just said, do all things without grumbling or questioning. If you've ever been around a 7th through 12th grader, they tend to grumble and question, complain and argue like Every 30 seconds, there's a new complaint. And so I just had a shirt. Whenever we would go on retreats, it was my retreat shirt. As soon as they started arguing about something, refer to the shirt. That's the rule. That's the way it is. But let me go back to verse 14. All right, so do all things without grumbling or questioning. Now, here's the thing I want us to think about. Because it's really easy for us to just concentrate on verse 14 and say, do all things without grumbling or questioning. Or your version might say complaining or arguing. And say, well, the pr- what I need to do then is just not complain. As long as I don't complain, I'm being sanctified. And what I want to do is kind of think about what we're trying to learn from Paul regarding grumbling and questioning and bring it up to a bigger category. Because I think that there's a bigger, broader category that Paul's addressing in 14 regarding our sanctification. And this is what it is. Christian contentment. I think that's what he's dealing with. He's going to do it again in Philippians 4. We're going to get to that again. But um, when we're coming to sanctification here in verse 14, this is what... We need to think about in regard to our sanctification. The third note for sanctification is this. Christians should be the most content people in the world. Why can you say that? I mean, we have troubles and hardships just like everybody else. How can you say we should be the most content? Here's why. I want you to think about this. If you're a believer, this is great. You're going to go to heaven. What's there to complain about? Seriously. We're going to go to heaven where everything is perfect, including us. There's no sickness. There's no war. And we're going to be with Jesus, our Savior, who gave his life for us. And that's going to be ages upon ages, upon ten thousands, upon ten thousands of years, with ever-increasing joy. Why can't I just be content with this short little time? There's an, I should be the most content person because my future is so sure, so secure, and so glorious. I should be, we should be the most content people in the world. John Piper gives an illustration of it this way. Um, and I'm going to venture into doing a Piper impersonation. So here's what, here's what he says. He talks about um, a man in the 1800s who had inherited um, millions of dollars. You know, back then, that's a lot. Of, even now, it's a lot of money, especially in this economy. So he had inherited... Just tons of money. And so he gets into his horse and buggy and he's, he's taking his horse and buggy ride. This is what it looks like over to the, uh, over to the place. And so he gets about a mile away from inheriting just an enormous sum of money and the wheel on his carriage breaks. And instead of getting out and saying infinite treasure awaits me, he gets out around his buggy and he looks at his wheel and he goes, my carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. That's my pipe impersonation. And so he's just whining, complaining about his when instead of forgetting about this wheel and saying infinite treasure awaits me. He's standing here one mile away complaining about his wheel. It's exactly what's going on with us. 
We should be the most content people. We are one mile away when infinite treasures in Christ awaits us. And yet we would find ourselves grumbling and questioning and complaining and arguing about things. When this is just such a short amount of time compared to infinite ages that we'll get to be with Jesus. Infinite ages. So Christians should be the most content people in the world because, I'm going to say it again, we are going to heaven Heaven with Jesus. So what what is it that we have to find ourselves so whiny and self-pitying and selfishly? I don't get to have this and that. And they do like seriously, we're going to heaven. Now, I'm not trying to diminish hardship. Okay, we all my mother has cancer and that's a hard thing. So I'm not saying that there's not real sacrificial. You know, there's things that pain us in this life. However, we should as believers not find ourselves grumbling, complaining, questioning, arguing things that are so trivial, whining, being self-centered and self-pitying whenever infinite treasure awaits us one day in in, in heaven. And Paul, I think, is going to give us an, an awesome applicational thought for us because in verse 14, look what he says. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. How do you actually physically, like literally, how do you grumble and question? You do it with your mouth. Literally, words have to come out of your mouth. You can't grumble. Maybe you can grumble and complain in your head, but no one else hears it. But whenever they hear it, it's, I mean, unless you're deaf, like it's you saying it with your mouth. You're, you're using words. Now, here's what's awesome, okay? Paul is going to take the idea of words coming out of your mouth that are, that are not for Jesus, but for, you know, Grumbling, complaining, self-pity, whining. And he's going to take that idea and he's going to transform it and give you an applicational thought. Look at this. Do all things without grumbling and questioning that you may become innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom, here it is, you shine as lights in the world right here, holding fast to the word of life. So what he's saying, I think, is the application is because you are blameless and innocent, because you have an absolute security in heaven, don't grumble, complain, question, argue about everything all the time. Instead, with your words, don't use your words for that. Instead, with your words, which are so powerful, James tells us, instead, hold fast to the word of life and hold out the word of life. Hold out the gospel to people. Don't complain. Your words are so powerful. Don't use them for whining and complaining and arguing. Instead, since they have such power, use them to declare the gospel to people. Isn't that an amazing dichotomy? The way he switches it up on us and you're like, whoa, I wasn't even expecting that. All of a sudden, you're telling, and now you're telling me, instead of doing it this, use it for this. Use it to tell people about Jesus. Your words are so powerful. They shouldn't be for whining. Instead, they should be for proclaiming out the contentment you have in Jesus and holding out the gospel to them so they can put their faith in Christ. Among all the other positive things we can use our words for. D.A. Carson says it this way. As Christians, we should hold out the word of life. Our words should not have any trace of self-pity, but we should have a life characterized by, with our words, sincere gratitude, godly praise, and telling people about Jesus. He didn't say that, but I'm not going to improve on D.A. Carson. I mean, he's D.A. Carson. Um, so, but I think that's a great applicational point for us when we're looking at this. So back it up for a second. What does your Christian life of contentment look like in sanctification? I mean, are you, 
truly finding your contentment in Jesus and, and being a child of his and saying, there's nothing really that I have to complain about. Or is everything negative Nancy? Everything always, you know, complaining Bob or whatever. That went, in, that went alliterated. Um, uh, complaining Charlie. Yeah. So anyway, I didn't think that went through. All right, so here's one other thing I want you to see. This is, I think, pretty amazing. This is pretty amazing, all right? Because a lot of us can say, well, here's the thing. Um, I'm just going to, I'm going to sit on the side and the moments that I feel inspired by the Spirit, that's when I'm going to do that. That's when I'm going to live a life of contentment. But there's times where it's just tough. And so I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, not do it. I'm just going to choose not to do anything. I'm going to remain neutral. There is no neutral. Look at this in verse 15. Look at this. Um, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Here it is. Among whom you shine. And not among whom you may shine. Among whom you might try to shine sometimes and not shine. If you're a believer, you're already shining. There's no off switch. There, you're shining all the time. You don't have a choice. So among whom you, you shine as lights in the world. So since there's no off switch and you're always shining, you must shine out this light of happiness in Jesus all the time because you're already doing it. You don't have a choice. So that, I thought that was a, a good extra point for us to remember. Now, that first one is contentment. Now we're going to move on to the second one, or I guess it's really the fourth. So look at uh, verse 16, holding fast to the word of life. So this is what he's telling us. We need to shine out his lights in the world. And we ourselves, not only do we hold out the word of life, but we as believers should also hold to the word of life. Holding fast to the word of life. So here's the fourth counsel for sanctification or fourth, whatever it is. Um, This is really simple. Remain gospel-centered. Now, I talked about this in the beginning of the sermon, but I want to explain what I mean here. Remain gospel-centered means remember what's already been declared of you. You are 100% righteous. Remember Romans 8, 1. There's therefore now no condemnation. There's never a moment where you are condemned. This, and we all kind of forget this. We all think, um, well, there's good days and there's bad days for me. The, the bad days are I woke up late and so I hit the alarm. And, and that's just me just saying, Jesus, I don't even want to be with you right now. So I hit the alarm over and over and over and I get up. And so I didn't meet with Jesus. And then I drive to work and I cussed out at least five people that day just on the drive to work. And it's only five minutes long. And then when I got there, I just berated every employee I had. When I got home, I made fun of my spouse or my kids or my roommate or whoever. And then I finally laid down. And I'm like, oh man, what a terrible day. Jesus is so angry at me right now. Or we have the opposite day where we wake up and we have a 17-hour devotion with Jesus. And then we lead 75 people to Jesus that day. We, we can remember verses from Leviticus. And we're like, I'm so Holy Spirit-filled. I'm quoting laws. I don't even know where it's coming from. When I lay down that night and we're like, oh, Jesus, I mean, you've got to be so pleased with me today. And so, like, I am, like, extra higher on your scale today compared to yesterday. I mean, yesterday was terrible. And here's the thing. If you're in Christ... You're not going to be more loved or less loved on either day. Remember gospel centered. You got to remember that your right standing with Jesus is not dependent upon your performance, but on Christ's performance 2000 years ago. It's not dependent on what you do. It's dependent on what's been done in the Now, I've already said you still got to work. So I've already explained that. 
But you have to remember, everything still is, you have to remain gospel-centered. Or as Paul says it, you have to hold on to the word of life. You have to hold on to this deep, heartfelt belief in the gospel. I, I can't do anything without the gospel. Hold on to it by preaching it to your wife, your kids, your spouse, or the same thing, or your, um, your roommate or your dad, but also to yourself. You have to hold out the word of life, the word of, of the truth, or however he says it. Um, hold out the, the word of life to yourself as well. So here's the thing. Sanctification can be tricky. It can be very tricky. This process of becoming more Christ-like, because we can think that our work or our fruit-bearing somehow completes now that we're doing it, or finishes, or finalizes, or adds to the finished work of Jesus. We're like helping him along, and it's not. It's all fruit. It's all evidence of what's happened. We're working from our salvation, not for our salvation. Everything has to be gospel-centered based on what's already been done. So I want to um, read you something from Jerry Bridges. And, I mean, this is longer than normal, but... uh, Here's the thing. Y'all are, y'all are remarkably smart. I know you are. So you're going to stick with me and we're going to do this because this is, this is amazing. And what he's doing, he's helping us as believers understand that whenever we go to an unbeliever and we're going to, we want them to meet Jesus, we don't say, hey, be content, right? <laughs> that doesn't get them saved. What do we say? We tell them the gospel. You, unbeliever, need to hear that Jesus died for you. Put your faith in it and then you'll be saved. And what we're going to say here is, I mean, how important is it that an unbeliever hear the gospel more than anything else? Pretty important. What we're going to say is it's just as important, equally important for you as a believer to hear the gospel. Not just for me to say, hey, be content. It's just as important as an unbeliever to hear the gospel for a believer to hear the gospel, have a good gospel foundation, and then know how to be content in a gospel way. So let me read this to you. He said, evangelicals, that's just Christians, commonly think that the gospel is only for unbelievers. Once we're inside the kingdom's door, we need the gospel only now to be able to go share it, not to do something in our life. But those who are still outside Christ, now as believers, we just need to hear the message of discipleship, is what he says. We need to learn how to live the Christian life and be challenged to go do it. That's What I believed and I practiced in my life and ministry for some time that you get saved by the gospel and now you leave the gospel and you just work on the message of discipleship. And he says, it is what Christians, most Christians seem to believe. And this is this is why this is important. This is huge. Don't miss this. As I see it, the Christian community is largely a performance based culture today. And the more deeply committed um, and. And the more deeply committed we are to following Jesus, the more deeply ingrained the performance mindset is. Meaning, we really believe that if we have the bad day, Jesus is mad at us. But if we have the good day, Jesus is happy with us. Instead of, it's all based on the cross. And so this is what he says. We think we earn God's blessing or forfeit it by how well we live the Christian life. Most Christians have a baseline of acceptable... Acceptable performance by which they gauge their acceptance by God. For many, this baseline is no more than just regular church attendance and the avoidance of major sins. He says such Christians are often characterized by some degree of self-righteousness. <laughs> Have you seen that? Well, I go to church every week and I don't do the, you know, those big ones. And so I'm pretty, I'm pretty good. 
I'm pretty, I'm really good. Jesus is pretty happy with that. So they have this self-righteousness because after all, they don't indulge in the major sins we see happening around us. Such Christians would not think that they need the gospel anymore. Listen to this. This is so key. They would say the gospel is only for sinners. Uh, (laughs) we are too. So gradually over time and from a deep sense of need, he says, I came to realize that the gospel is for believers too, not just unbelievers. This is where it's, this is the meat of it. And y'all are doing awesome. I learned that Christians need to hear the gospel all of their lives because it is the the gospel that continues to remind us that our day-to-day acceptance with the father. Here it is. is not based on what we do for God, but upon what Christ has done for us in his sinless life and sin bearing death. I began to see that we, oh, this is so good. Oh, we stand before God today as righteous as we ever will be in heaven. Think about that for a second. I mean, heaven's going to be pretty incredible. And you are going to be really righteous in heaven, right? Just as righteous right now. God's not more in love with the future version. It's Matt Chandler. He's not more in love with the future version of you and less in love with you now. He's just in love with you right now as he is of the future version of you who's so much more sanctified. I want to read this again. I want you to hear it. We stand before God today as righteous as we ever will be even in heaven. Let that soak in. What is your sanctification like? Remain gospel centered. Let's keep going. Because here's why. Because he has clothed us with the clothed us with the righteousness of his son. Therefore, I don't have to perform to be accepted by God. Now I am here. It is. This is that verse 12. Work out your salvation. Now I am free to obey him and free to serve him because I'm already accepted by God. Accepted in Christ. Here it is. My driving motivation is now not guilt, but gratitude. Isn't that awesome? That's why we work out our salvation. Yet, even when we understand that our acceptance with God is based on Christ's work, and this is, this is the rest of your life, okay? This is what it's going to feel like the rest of your life. You're going to, on Sunday, yes, Fud, yes, gospel-centered, all because of Jesus' work. Yes, yes, yes. By Wednesday, you're like, I'm a mess. Jesus is so mad at me. What? So here's the thing. Like, don't, don't forget this. This is a week by week. You need, this is why you need to preach the gospel to yourself every day. Hold out the word of life to yourself every day. Remind yourself who you are. This is what he says. Um, yet, Even when we understand that our acceptance with God is based on Christ's work, we will naturally tend to drift back into a performance mindset. Don't you do that? Like miss your miss your quiet time for for seven days. And don't don't tell me that your mind doesn't think God's so mad at me right now. And I'm not saying, hey, your pastor's not saying go miss your quiet time. I'm not saying that. I'm saying when you do, you know that that's what you think. God's so mad at me right now. He doesn't even want to. My prayers just probably hit the ceiling and bounce back at me. I've heard Christians say these things. Um, And this is what he says. We tend to drift into a performance base. Consequently, we must, this is what believers must do, continually return to the gospel. As Paul says, hold fast to the word of life. To use an expression of, of the late Jack Miller, Bridges says, we must preach the gospel to ourselves every day. What does that mean? Literally. What do you mean, Fudd? Preach the gospel to myself. I mean, literally say, you are not a sinner in Christ. You are not a slave to sin. You are a slave to righteousness. God has declared you 
100% righteous today. Therefore, based on that, let's go live out what's already declared of me. Live this out today, not based on guilt because he'll be mad at me because he's never mad at me. Instead, based on gratitude because, back to Philippians 2, 1 through through 11, he incarnated himself and died for you. Therefore, he's going to be highly exalted. I want to live a life that shows, yes, he deserves to be highly exalted every day. So I got to preach the gospel to myself so that I can live a life of gratitude and worship saying, you deserve this. Jesus, you deserve this. I want to live a life that shows you that. So that's the, uh, the fourth one is we need to remain gospel-centered, holding out the word of life to ourselves every time so we're motivated by gratitude of the gospel, not by guilt saying, oh, I hadn't read my Bible in a week. He's so mad at me. If I don't get my act in order, who knows what he'll do? You know, I'll be demoted to slave instead of son and daughter. It's just not true. Not true. All right, let's go into the fifth one because I'm sure I'm out of time. Um, 17. Um, holding, let's finish 16, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I not run in vain or in labor in vain. 17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, if that's unfamiliar language to you, let me explain that to you. If you, you don't have to, but it's in second Timothy chapter four, verse six. This is the end of Paul's life. As he pens second Timothy, he knows that he's about to go die. And second Timothy four, six, he uses that exact, exact same language about being poured out. This is what he says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Well, that didn't help Fudd. He just said the same thing here. The second half helps. Um, and the time of my departure has come. So what he's, this metaphor of pouring out his life as a drink offering means I'm about to die. My life is about to die. It's about to be over. So back over here in Philippians 2.17, he says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and will rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. We can see this reoccurring theme, which we're going to see the entire book of joy. That's why this thing called Christ our joy. And so Paul is just again calling for us to have Christ be our highest joy. And he's doing it by 17 saying, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering. So this is what he's saying. Um, This is point five. We should, in, in sanctification, find our joy in sacrificing our life, pouring out our life for Christ. Now, if you're like me, you immediately say, oh, so I'm supposed to go die for Jesus then. I'm not talking about dying for Jesus. I'm talking about living for Jesus. The rest of your days, every thought, every decision, every dollar, every conversation, I want you to pour that out as a drink offering and say, I don't want my way. I want this particular life that I have, the Romans 12, 1, living sacrifice. That I want to sacrifice the rest of my life for Jesus, for his glory. And I want to find joy in that. That's what I mean in sanctification, this fifth one, that you would find your joy and sacrificing your life. Now, I'm not talking about dying, living, sacrifice the rest of your living life, all of your money, all of your talks, all of your friendships and everything that I am going to freely sacrifice what I want and let it be what Christ wants. Because that's where I'll find my highest joy is in Jesus. Christ is my joy. I think SMAP said, Stephen said it great last week. I'm not supposed to be significant. Jesus is supposed to be significant. That's a good word. Because he is where we find our highest joy. So let's think about this. Sanctification. Where are you? We covered a lot. 
But I'm pretty sure the Holy Spirit may have nudged in some places. Did he nudge into that workplace? Do you find yourself just not working out your salvation with fear and trembling at all? You, you don't even know what it means to give evidence, to bear fruit for Jesus. Or perhaps it's the Holy Spirit. You would absolutely agree. You would assent to the fact that the Holy Spirit is essential in the life of a believer. But there's no tangible um, evidence that shows that you actually do that. You don't depend on him. You just do it yourself or you don't depend on him and you just willingly commit sin. Work, Holy Spirit. Maybe it's um, contentment. If we were around you for half hour, 30 seconds, it would just be complain after complain after complain about things. When heaven awaits, what do we not have to be content about? Or maybe it's just the gospel centrality. The idea that this performance basis, yeah, I can't even believe that. Like it's not dependent upon my day. It's dependent upon that day when Jesus died on the cross. And I have to return to that and let that be my driving motivation to go and bear fruit for him. Maybe that idea of it all being based on his work is so hard for you. And you just kill yourself daily in trying to perform for Jesus whenever you've Miss Romans 8, 1. There's therefore now, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's no amount of performance, by the way, that you'll do where he'll finally say, oh, good job, finally. Because then you're just saying, well, Jesus didn't do enough. It's all based on the cross. Or perhaps it's the idea of pouring your life out as a sacrifice for the joy that we find in Christ. Every dollar, every conversation, I want to see it be sacrificed for the glory of Jesus and my joy. You live a compartmentalized life, maybe. I don't know. But what I do know is this. God is so amazingly gracious. And when he leads us to an awareness of sin and we feel conviction... He always comforts us. He's so good. And so however he's leading right now, we're going to have some time to respond. We're going to have three or four songs here. And if God has talked to you, I just invite you to take this opportunity and respond. Maybe you need to pray and sit and think for a while. Maybe you need to talk. Find the person you came with and talk with them. I'll be down front. Maybe you want to talk to me. Use this opportunity to, to sit and think and maybe read the scriptures and, and, and confess sin, but know that the Lord comforts you. And then stand when all you've worked through these things and just give God the glory. Thank you, Jesus. I want my life to be demonstrated by verses 9 through 11. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, including these two. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess, including this one, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And you have a time of worship where you just worship Him. I'm going to pray. And then as the Holy Spirit leads, just be obedient. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. I mean, we are just in awe that you would speak to us. 
your word, your spoken word in our hands that we can hear from you daily. What a gift. Thank you for speaking to us. I, I said nothing today, Lord. You said things. I, I pray that the Holy Spirit takes my meager attempt at saying things. And it's the Holy Spirit that does work in our hearts. And I pray that you would lead us right now, perhaps towards repentance, perhaps towards exaltation and praise. Lord, whatever it is, we're all in different places. Would you lead us right now and help us be obedient in the process and not just say, oh, I can do this later. That's not something I want to do right here. But Lord, we would all confess, think about where we are in Christ. And I pray for my friends here, Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know Jesus, that hasn't put their faith in Christ, that they would do that now. They would see and understand the gospel as the most beautiful reality in the world and say, yes, Jesus, come save me. Be with us now as we respond. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.